The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. Okay, today's verse is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched, with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to, to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you, these things, so that our joy may be complete. The Word of God. All right. Wonderful to be with you. Excited to look at God's Word with you. But let's pray. Ask for help. Heavenly Father, we do need help when we come before your Word. You alone know where each one of us is at with you as we come this morning. Lord, maybe we're full of sadness or full of doubt. Uh, maybe we're excited. Maybe we have just been thinking about other things. We're distracted. But we come here, we sit, we take a, take a deep breath and remember that you are a speaking, communicating God. And um, we want to refocus ourselves and put our eyes on you and ask you for open ears and soft hearts, Lord, um, whatever our story is with you, Lord, we pray that you would speak today. You would show us your truth. Help us to know that we know you. If we don't know you, let us come to know you. Uh, do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Really excited to begin our study through the letter we know as First, First John. But I want to begin, kind of prime the pump, with this question. How do you know that you know God? And can you know that you know God? How do you know? I don't know about you, but I think a lot of people take these things for granted. I think a lot of people just assume, of course I know God. So this might be strange, you know, coming from a pastor, but let's, let's be cynical for a moment. Let's doubt a little. I want to give two reasons to doubt that we can know God. One reason to doubt that you know God is all the millions of different opinions about God. Have you thought of that? So many different opinions about what God is or what God is like. How can we know that we know him? I'm going to get my nerd on here a little bit. There's a sociologist named Christian Smith who studied religious lives of Americans and he discovered what he calls um, the most common religion in America, really that's underneath all the official religions. Doesn't matter, Smith says, whether you're Buddhist or Protestant or Catholic, this is what most Americans really believe. And he called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Now let me unpack that for you a little bit. Moralistic, I think it'll sound familiar. Most people think they should try to be nice. Isn't that true? Most people, I want to be a nice person. I want to be a good person. Moralistic. 
Second, it's therapeutic. What Christian Smith means by that is that life is really about validating yourself and being happy, whatever that means to you. So you really live for your own happiness. That's what most people say they believe. So moralistic, be a nice person, but live for your own happiness. And then that last term, deism. Deism gives you this idea of a God that's distant. Maybe started things up, but now it's kind of up to you. So by deism here, Smith says, people believe there's a God, but he's distant and he's especially undefined. Do you believe in God? Yeah. What's God like? Whatever's true for you. Have you heard that before? Whatever's true for you. Uh, You kind of, you figure it out. You define it. You come up with it. So we don't know much about this God, but we do know that he's here to make us happy. And again, I'm not trying to be um, antagonistic as I share this with you. This is what Smith discovered from surveys and interviews and research. This is what most Americans actually functionally believe. And I don't know about your experience, but I, I think Smith is right from my very small experience. I hear this all the time. Moralistic therapeutic deism. So if you're going to have a bumper sticker for this religion... Uh, I'm not really a bumper sticker person for religion. But anyway, if you're going to have one, it would say this, spiritual but not religious. Have you heard that before? Maybe you've said, hey, that's me. I have lots of, lots of friends like that. I'm spiritual but not religious. And so it comes down to, do you believe in God? Well, sure. Moralistic therapeutic deism. I should be nice, and I'm trying to be happy, and I believe in a God out there. I don't really know any details about what he or it or whatever it is actually is. Um, But yeah, spiritual but not religious, so I don't need to go to an official religion where they say, this is God. I do what's true for me. I kind of invent it myself. It's how I, God is how I feel like God is. That's what most Americans believe. Does anybody see a problem with that when it comes to knowing God? Say someone asked, uh, do you know Matt's wife, Marsha? And say someone else said, sure, she's really tall, blonde hair, wears red high heels, and likes to watch daytime television. <laughs> now you're laughing, we're at a small church, and most of you know Marsha, and most of you know that pretend person, I don't know who they were describing, but what? That's not Marsha. <laughs> and what if that person then said, well, that's who she is to me. It's true for me. I, as her husband, would want to say, well, true for you, it ain't true, (laughs) right? If we can't do that with human persons, why can we do it with God? Why can we do it with God? One religious perspective, for instance, says Jesus is a good teacher who helps you on the way to know this nice, undefined God that we all kind of sort of believe in. Another religious perspective says Jesus is the eternal Son of God and the only way to the Holy Father through his cross and resurrection. They both can't be true. They just can't. They can't be true. So one reason to doubt that we know God is all these opinions about what God is like. And if we take true for you into account, there's literally billions of opinions about what God is like. And they just can't all be true, which means... That a lot of people who think they know God 
Don't. You just can't. Because of all these incredibly conflicting opinions about God. So how, again, how can you know that you know God? How do you know that you know God? That's the first doubt is all these variety of opinions. The second doubt is more personal. It's about yourself. And, and I'm, I guess I'm speaking here to people who claim to be Christians. Have you ever had the doubt? Have you ever wondered, am I really a Christian? Have you ever had that thought, did I just pick up a religious hobby along the way? Do I really know this God I claim to believe in? Doesn't it kind of haunt you sometimes? You got all this, this factoid stuff about the Christian God, and then do you wonder, but does, does, is there a personal thing here where he knows me and I know him? How would I know that? And then you look at your life sometimes and you think, oh, I didn't look like I know God today, the way I lived. I've been there. So you've got these two doubts. One's kind of an intellectual doubt. One's more a personal doubt or a soul doubt. They both bring doubt to this question. Can you know that you know God? How do you know that you know God? Well, I raise these questions because these questions are mainly what 1 John is about. This is what 1 John, this is what John is talking about. Look at 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you. Why? That you may know. I write these things to you that you may know. We're going to dig into that, but first let me give you a little background to this letter since we're just starting today. Background, I want to talk about author, situation, motivation real quick. First of all, the author. Well, can you guess who the author is? Yeah, your text is helping you out here. We think it's John. Now, you won't see his name in the letter. Um, when, when authors do that, I mean, it shows you the reality, first of all, of the letter, because if it was created later on and you wanted to tag the Apostles John names to, name to it, you'd get it in there somehow. It, it's not in there because the original one didn't have it, but the earliest church tradition is unanimous that the man who wrote this letter is the Apostle John. So here you're looking at G one of Jesus' closest friends, you're looking at one of his original disciples, and you're looking at one of Jesus' apostles. What do we mean by apostle? It's an eyewitness of Jesus' life and death and resurrection who's given authority by Jesus to proclaim Jesus. That's John. And by the time of this letter, bro is old. He's in his 80s or 90s, okay? Second, the situation. He's writing to a struggling community of local churches. As you read this letter, you'll see John is quite familiar with them, and they are quite familiar with him. But also as you read this letter, you'll notice it's missing some things that other New Testament letters have. You won't have the normal formal greeting, and you won't have the detailed application you sometimes get. For instance, you read Corinthians, and Paul is talking about what's going on in that local church. Very specific, very detailed, very local. For 1 John, it's far different. You don't get, you don't get names. As, you don't get specific local situations. So what's happening, uh, scholars believe, is that there's this community of churches, and the issue they're facing isn't like inward conflict. It's, it's more big picture stuff that they're all facing. It's, it's more cultural things they're all facing. And so the greeting and all the formality, that would come with the courier who brings it. John wants to talk about bigger picture issues of the time. So that's the first aspect of the situation. The second aspect of the situation is that this group of churches is facing um, a movement of people I'm going to call the tamperers. 
tamperers. Now, why? why? You won't find that in this letter. This is something um, I'm giving, which I hope will, hope will be helpful. Look at the, what does the word tamper mean? Let me show you. Tamper. Interfere with or make unauthorized alterations. To exert a secret or corrupt influence. Tamperers. Tamperers don't hate Christianity, or at least they wouldn't say that they hate Christianity. Tamperers would say they want to improve Christianity. They want to make it more culturally acceptable. They want to get it in line with the times. And as you read through 1 John, you see they're dealing with a group of people who they've left the community of churches, but they're kind of sending influencers back in to say to all the churches, hey, we're the ones who know the right way. Tamperers, uh, they tamper with the message of who Jesus is. They tamper with the message of how you get right with God. They're tampering with the message of what it means to follow Jesus. Ultimately, they're tampering with what it means to, can you guess? Know God. They're tampering with it. And so you see now John's motivation. He writes mainly for two things. He writes for clarity and for confidence. What do we mean by clarity? Well, John is going to say, this is what it means to know God, and here's why. This and not that. Clarity. Second, John wants that clarity to lead to courage. Courage. He wants you to know that you know God. You think of what some of these people would have experienced in these churches when tamperers come and, and kind of change the message. It would lead to doubt in some people. Do I really know? Is what I believe really true? Is what I rely on really, can I trust it? Can I believe it? Do I really know God? And we can understand that kind of doubt. And so as John gives clarity, he wants you to have confidence. He wants you to understand a courageous confidence. Do you realize that over 30 times in this letter, John will use some kind of the word no? That's a lot for this little letter. You can know. We know. You know. We know. It's, that kind of confidence is rather unfashionable in our day, isn't it? When you talk about spiritual things, you're supposed to be, well, maybe. John's too old for that. <laughs> no. We know. This is how we know. And he writes this. Four times he used the words confidence. You can know with confidence that you know God. You can know that you know God with confidence. He wants us to move from clarity to confidence. But I feel like I should warn us a little bit here. For some of us, just maybe in between clarity and confidence will come a third category, which might be something like crisis. Crisis. You can imagine how this works. If John says, this is how you know you know God, and whatever it is, maybe it's something to believe or it's something to do or it's how you live. If he says, this is how you know God, and then you see, I don't have that, or I don't believe that, or this goes against what I assumed. Do you see how that leads to crisis? And you'll be facing just Christianity is like this, isn't it? You'll be facing 
the reality of Jesus and his claims. And sometimes it can be very uncomfortable. And if you're a Christian, have you ever been there before? Just so we can help everybody feel. Have you ever been like Jesus just boxed me in the nose? Jesus just kicked me in the ribs? It will be like that. And so who gives this clarity, that can lead to crisis. So I just, I guess I want to encourage you, if you hit that moment of, oh, you know, maybe you'll be angry. Or, or maybe you'll be, uh, you'll be confronted. Maybe you'll be crushed. I don't know. Whatever it is, I just want to encourage you. Hey, seek. Pray. Pray that God will reveal himself. Ask questions. Uh, if you find yourself mad or confused or something about anything I say, let me just tell you, I would love to chat with you. I really would. I'd love to, to listen to your questions, I'd love to hear you out, I'd love to give you uh, more, more perspective, whatever, but that, that's, I'm actually praying that that will happen. Clarity to crisis, and then through the crisis as we seek God, as he moves on us, confidence. I know him. I know him. All right, well, let's open up these first few verses now. They're going to be foundational for the rest of the letter. John's always going to be looking back in some way to what he says in these first four things. So just to give you a heads up so you can kind of follow along, here's the, first, here's the four things I think we need to see. Number one, the original gospel. Number one, the knowable gospel. Or excuse me. Number one, the original gospel. Number two, the knowable gospel. Number three, the point of knowing the gospel Number four, the result of knowing the gospel. The original gospel, the knowable gospel, the point of knowing the gospel, the result of the gospel. All right, here we go. 1 John 1, 1. Look at his first phrase. That which was from the beginning. Why would you say that? Why would you start like that? That which was from the beginning. Remember, what's the challenge John and these churches are facing? Tamperers. They want to give you something new. And John says, hey, let's look to the old. John's an old man. He's seen a lot at this point. Any of you feel like you can relate to John? Might have a couple of, a couple of you in here, okay? He's so old, he calls everyone little children. <laughs> you know you've reached a new level where it's like, Little children, and wait, there's grown men in here. It doesn't matter, you're all children to me, okay? That's where John, uh, some think he might be 80, 90 years old, but he's seen the fads, he's seen the fake, he's suffered years of persecution for what he believes, he's seen his fellow apostles murdered for this message. He does not care to be cool, he's not trying to convince anyone of anything new, he's trying to convince everyone to have a new commitment to the old. He's all about the original gospel. Real quick, you see this all through this letter, 1 John 2, 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Vintage, original gospel. 1 John 2, 13. I'm writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. 1 John 2, 24. Let what you heard from what? The beginning abide in you. Cling to the original apostolic statement of the gospel. Let me give you a couple of reasons why this is so important. I'm going to look outside of just John here. 
One of the first epistles we have chronologically is Paul's letter to the Galatians, maybe early 50s. And in this letter, Paul is going to, he's, he's going to refer to something he preached before that. So you're, you're looking at the proclamation of the early church from like the day after Jesus. It's so close. Look what Paul says in Galatians 1.6. I'm astonished that you're so quickly, what are the next two words? Deserting him. Who called you in the grace of Christ. How are they deserting him? They're turning to what? A different gospel. And then Paul throws out there, not that there is another one. You see what he just did? The original gospel is the only actual good news. We get God with the original gospel. If we depart from the original gospel, we depart, we des we're deserting him. And we're going to something, by definition, Paul says, that is a fraud. Gospel means good news, right? Hey, this is the best news you've ever heard. We think it's about the person and work of Jesus. Paul says if you leave that, who he is and what he's done and how we know God, you're deserting God and you're going to go to a not good news. There aren't any other ones. So from the first moment, this first emphasis is cling to, know the original gospel. It's the only gospel. Number two, the original gospel is unimprovable. It's unimprovable. Look at Jude 1.3. Jude 1.3. Beloved. I like how they talk. I love you guys. That's what Jude says. Although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. You know, argue for it. Keep it. Insist on it. Don't let it go. Contend for the faith. And look what that next phrase says. That was three words. So important. Once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all means we've reached the heights. We've reached the perfections on what the gospel is. It cannot be improved. Therefore, it shall not be changed. It is once for all. It's been delivered to the saints. That means it's definable and it's knowable. We know what the gospel is. That's why true for you, Christians always go, right? When they, ah, that's not how the gospel came to me or to you or to anyone. No one went out and dreamed it up in a cave. Jesus came and blew us away with who he was. And then he predicted his death and resurrection, and then he did it. And he told his disciples, what's up? It's the prediction of all God's promises. This is the gospel. It's, there it is. We know what it is. It's unimprovable. Contend for it. Keep it. It's the only gospel. It's unimprovable. It's definable. It should never be changed. Why? Because the gospel is beautiful. I'll just give you a nugget here from John's gospel, the gospel of John. There's so many echoes in 1 John from the gospel of John. So if you really want to dig into this, read the gospel of John all spring. Read 1 John every week. See how the, those things tie together. But look what, maybe you've heard this one, John 3.16. For God, what did he do? He loved the world. And for John there, the world means, you mean this evil place? This dumpster fiber place? This place? Yeah. 
God so loved the world that he gave. Look at who he gave. His only son, his unique eternal son. That whoever, even in that dark, rotten, corrupted world, that whoever believes in him should what? You're not perish. You won't get what you deserve. But instead, you'll have everlasting life. You'll know God, and you'll know his life. When, when, every once in a while, I have a conversation with people from other religions, and I love those conversations. My favorite one ever was probably a Muslim friend of mine says, you real, you know, we kind of came to the conclusion, you realize my religion says you're in deep trouble. <laughs> and the other guy says, and my religion says you're in deep trouble. And we both agreed to say, and that's why we should try to persuade one another. And we can still be friends and love one another as we do that. Amen? It doesn't have to get personal. This is far bigger than me or you and our opinions. But a lot, of, a lot of times I say to people, what do you have that's better than what I have? What do you have? Because most every religion is going to give you some sort of, well, you better do this and do this right if you want to be right with God. A lot of people think Christianity is about being a good person, moralistic therapeutic deism. Just be a nice, be a nice person. Christianity, no, no, because you're not nice people, right? <laughs> you're, you're sinful people. You've rebelled against God. You haven't loved him or your neighbor. You're not climbing out of this hole on your own. So look at the gospel. God gave the very, very, I don't have words for it, the best, his eternal son, to the worst rebellious people, so that not by works, but by his grace, through faith, believing in him, you can miss all the wrath that you deserve and instead have eternal life for free based on what he's done. I defy any religion, right, to give me something better than that. That's why we go back to the original gospel. It's the only one. It's unimprovable. It's beautiful. You want to know God? This is what John is saying. Know the original gospel. Hang on to it. If you hear something brand new about God or Jesus or how it is to know him, it's probably not true. Now, wait a second. Uh, you might come here on Sunday morning and learn something new to you. I hope that's the case. I'm still learning things. But that's not because what I'm learning is new. It's just new to me what I'm learning. It's old. <laughs> you see the difference? But if it's totally new to Christianity, if it's an improvement on the gospel for the sake of the times, this culture... This new knowledge will not lead you to a knowledge of God. Jesus and his work is perfect. That's what John is saying. That which was from the beginning. And this has massive implications. Can you feel them? This has, these, this has implications that feel rather confrontative. This has implications for Islam. A new claim about Jesus from about 400 A.D. This has massive claims for Jehovah's Witnesses, for Mormonism, for progressive Christianity. Do you hear what John's saying? That which was from the beginning. 
know the original gospel. New news about Jesus is not true news about Jesus. To know God, you must know the original, unimprovable gospel. Second point, you can because it's knowable. It is knowable. Look at verses 1 to 2. Twice you get this word, manifest. Manifest. What does that word mean? Manifest means to make something plainly visible, uh, to, to show that it's actual, knowable, to make it known. To, it's explicit. It's in front of your face. You can't ignore it. There it is. To make something manifest. And John is saying you can believe that original gospel because it came through a person who's imminently knowable. Look at, look at his words. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard. He's talking about the group of apostles. And what did they hear? They heard Jesus talk. We heard him. Look at this next phrase. Which we have seen with our eyes. Why do you need to say seen with our eyes? Why wouldn't you just say seen? Well, there's probably roots of something called Gnosticism beginning in this time of history. And Gnosticism was this idea of like the true gnosis, it means knowledge, this true special spiritual knowledge. And it's kind of the first century version of true for you. How do you know? I felt it. Uh, I did yoga at the beach. Um, and John says, this was so different. We saw it with our eyeballs. It walked in front of us. Uh, Tim Keller likes to say, if your version of God always believes you and agrees with you and affirms you, you might be making up your God. If you think about it, that's probably true. Do you have any friends who always agree with you, believe in you, and affirm you? If you're married, right? Let's take this to a new level. Does your spouse always agree with you on anything? Yeah, lots of things. But that's how you know it's a different person. They have a different take on life. Or they agree, but they... They see it in a, in, a, in a fresh way, a different way. There's other people in the world. That's what makes life difficult and wonderful. If your God doesn't bump up against you sometimes, make you think, you can't say that. Or make a demand where you think, what? That can't, that can't be right. If you always agree with your version of God, if it's never uncomfortable, you might just be looking in a spiritual mirror. It might just be you. And so John says, it wasn't like that for us when Jesus came. We saw him with our eyeballs. He messed with us. He, it confronted us. That which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands. Looked upon means to behold. I heard one pastor say, you know, if you're trying, you ever seen the old lady at the grocery store trying to find like just the perfect cantaloupe or something? Okay. She's, she didn't just walk by the cantaloupes and see them. She's beholding the cantaloupes, you know, like she wants to understand. John says, we looked at Jesus like that. 
we, we stared at this. We thought about this. There he was. And we've touched him with our hands. Jesus uses this word, this Greek word behind touch with our hands, when he says in Luke 24, look, look at what he said to Thomas. See my hands and feet that it is myself. What? Touch me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This is after Jesus' resurrection. Touch me. I'm right here. I'm physical. I'm physical. John says, we saw it. We touched him. What was being made manifest is the word of life. That's so interesting, isn't it? Who's John talking about? He's talking about a person. Jesus. Jesus, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, we beheld him. But he calls him the word of life. Why is Jesus called the word? What does a word do? It communicates. It communicates. You ever been overseas and you're at a place where you don't know the language? And you just long to be able to really communicate. Because what does communication build? Relationship. Communication builds relationship. And do you see who Jesus is? He's the Word, which means He's communicating from God to humanity so that we can know Him. He's the Word of life. When you know Him, you get God's kind of life. Perfect and vulnerable, joyful, pure, wise, eternal. That's who Jesus is. Let's look back at John chapter 1, verse 1 real quick. John chapter 1, verse 1. This is John's gospel before the letter. 1 verse 1. I'm going to try not to unpack this too long. It's too much in here. John 1 verse 1. Look, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you see here the... The beginnings of the understanding of the Trinity. He's with God, just two different persons. He has the same essence as and nature as God. Two different persons who both are divine. He was with God, he was God. Verse 2 He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Who through whom was everything made? Jesus. What does that tell you about Jesus? He was not made. That just set you apart. If you believe that, you're in the Christian worldview. He's eternal God. That's the beginning. All things were made through him. Without him, not anything made that was made. In verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. It's a different, it's God's pure, amazing, perfect, eternal life. And then John 1, 1, 1, John 1 verse 14. Look what happened. This is what John is talking about in chapter one of this letter. The word, what did he do? He became flesh. He put skin on. He became actually human. And he dwelt among us. He walked these streets. We had dinner together. And we have seen his glory. There's nobody like this, he says. There's nobody like this. So why is he saying all this? Friends, you can know the original gospel because it's knowable. It's knowable. 
Witnesses saw it. It wasn't one shaman off in the hills in a cave looking through magic glasses or seeing something that no one else could see. It was in front of a crowd. It couldn't have been a hallucination. It's historical fact. We saw it. We did not invent this. We couldn't have invented this. It happened to us. It was physical. You can know that the original gospel is knowable. Christianity is historical faith. It's rational. There's There's a history to it. There were witnesses of it. You can put your confidence in the reality of the gospel. You know, spiritual but not religious and true for you, it kind of keeps religious things foggy and fuzzy and of the feelings and in here. Jesus Christ in the flesh is so different. It's not something we're inventing. It's something that we're having to consider that's outside of us making claims upon us. So here's a moment of crisis, perhaps. John is saying that to know God, you're going to have to trust the apostolic witness. Isn't that what he's saying? You're going to have to trust us. We saw him. Read our accounts. Read Matthew. Read Mark. Read Luke. Read John. Listen, listen to us try to persuade. Paul said, I'm going to try to persuade you. I'm going to try to use all the evidence there is. But ultimately, were you there? Did you see him in the flesh with your eyeballs? Me neither. So how do you know? You're going to have to trust an authority. Now, if you're sitting there thinking right now, why would I trust this authority? That's fine. Have your doubts. I just want you to pursue those. Will you pursue those? Study the, why is the New Testament believable or not? And as you pursue that doubt, I just want to ask you this favor. Use that same doubt on the other authorities. So everyone has an authority for what they believe and why about God. You can't not have one. Do you understand? Everyone has an authority. So if you want to test the Christian version of that, by all means, you should. Test away. But use that same test on the other options. So for instance, sometimes I'll hear people say, well, I can't trust the New Testament. It was written by human beings and humans are flawed. Okay. So who do you trust instead? Myself. Anybody see a problem? Are you a human being? Are you flawed? The apostles were flawed. They'll tell you that. They'll show you that. They were. But Jesus Christ, they'll also tell you, took flawed people. And he transformed them. And God wants to be known. And so God inspired their proclaiming and their teaching so that what we have preserved for us here has two authors. It's very human. It's written by the human authors. It's also divine. It was inspired by the divine author, which means you can trust it. You can trust it. And you have to, because listen, as we go through this letter, John is going to tell you how to know God. He's going to tell you if you know God. And he might tell some of us that we don't know God. Do you believe him? Why should we believe him? 
because he knew Jesus, saw Jesus die and rise, and was chosen by Jesus to authoritatively proclaim Jesus. That's why. But here's the thing. You can trust the apostles. They've won my trust over the years. I don't think there's any other religious leader in history that has a trustworthy, trustworthiness that exceeds that of these men. Uh, there was nothing in it for them from a selfish perspective. Did any of them get super rich? Are they like the TV pastors of today? Did any of them live in super comfort? Did any of them uh, win a bunch of military victories that gave them political power? Nothing like that at all. Their integrity is evident in their message and their character. They were honest about their own flaws. And they were willing to suffer and die when they were uniquely in the position to know whether or not the message they promoted was a lie. You didn't realize that? Would you die for something you knew you had fabricated? Think of Peter. He was crucified upside down. Maybe you're making something up and you're like, hey, I'm going to try to get a lot of followers. I'm going to be famous. And then they're saying, Peter, uh, deny Jesus or we will crucify you upside down. At what point do you go, I was just kidding? <laughs> Can we skip that? They saw it. They're trustworthy. Now, if you have loads of questions right here, that's awesome. Ask them. Seek. Pray. You can trust them. So know the original gospel. Know it because it's knowable. Now, here's the point of knowing the gospel. This is the point. This is John's point. He's not ultimately arguing so that he can argue. He doesn't have any interest in that. Look what he says in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too, that, that means also, that you may have fellowship with us, kind of the apostolic movement, and indeed our fellowship is with who? The Father and His Son. Do you see this? The message is the path to the person. The reason I'm telling you about this original, knowable gospel is so that you can know God himself. It's one thing to know what the gospel says, isn't it? And another thing to know the gospel. Isn't life like this? Um, you know, you're thinking about uh, getting married, it's one thing to have an idea in your mind on what it's like to be married, and then, you know, if you're married, you know this is true. It's another thing to actually be married. Uh, you knew, but you didn't know. So much of life is like that. It's true. With the, you, you, can't you know lots of theology and not know God? Can you know, can you know God without the theology? Oh, do you know Marsha? Yeah, she's a tall blonde with uh, red high heels. You don't know her. You don't know her. The theology shows you who he is. C.S. Lewis talked about it like this. Imagine you go into a kind of a broken down barn in a field, and you walk in, and inside it's dark. And then there's a crack in the roof, and you see a beam of light coming through the crack. So you, in one sense, you can look at the beam of light. I, I see it there shining through. I can look at Christian doctrine. I can see what it says. But it's different to go walk under the beam of light and look through that hole in the roof and see the blue sky. 
Do you see the difference between looking at and looking through? Faith looks through the doctrine, not, not to see through it as if it's invisible, but to look to it and see the person the doctrine is about. It's to know him. It's to know Jesus. The word there is fellowship. It's fellowship. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. Do you believe that? Fellowship means relational sharing, deep level knowing, life in common, deep level sharing. Do you have friends you've had fellowship with? People talk about foxhole friends. We went through things together, and we have a bond that will never break. That was a kind of fellowship. That was a sharing of experience, of relationship. There's, there's, other, there's plenty of flavors of that, right? John here is saying that through the original knowable gospel, you can have fellowship with God himself. In fact, that's the point. Jesus did not come so that you would know about him only. He came so that you would know him. Fellowship. Fellowship. I want to think about it just in a few levels with you. We're going to unpack this more later as we go through this letter. A couple of aspects on what fellowship means. Fellowship is sharing. Look, it's a sharing in life. Look at 1 John 5.11, a sharing in life. This is the testimony. This is what we believe. This is the original gospel. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. If you put your genuine faith in Jesus Christ, did you know that the Father unites you to him? That his death was your death, a death to rebellion. His life is a new life, and you actually have the real life of Jesus in you. You share that. You have fellowship with him. Here's where the clarity moves through crisis and becomes confidence. If you trust Christ and you know you trust Christ, you have his life. You share that with him. We share in relationship. Look at 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called, what? Children of God. Talk about sharing. Did you see how the Father shared his son with you? Go become human, live for them, die for them, rise for them, be united to them. And now what does the son share with you? My father, your father. How many of you would do that with anyone? Come on in, share my father as your father, not just my king as your king. Not just the universal God as your God. My father, intimate, close, your father. If you're a Christian, that is yours. You share that with Jesus. There's a sharing in communication. Look at 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence that we have toward him. If we, have, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's just one picture. One picture. What can you have towards him? Confidence. Confidence about what? He hears your prayers. Do you have fellowship with God in communication? Does he talk to you? 
Do you have times when you're reading his word and you're listening and you're looking? Do you have times of prayer where you pour out your heart to him, you're communicating what's going on in there? Do you have times when, you've, when you feel him nudge you this way or push you on that way or encourage you in this other way? If you're a Christian, you have the fellowship of communication. It's yours. Another one, there's a sharing in interest. Interest, look at 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We'll talk about that more next week. But light is part of God's moral purity, loving the right thing. And as you have a relationship with him, guess what you start to love? Guess what you start to want? You start to want what he wants. You start to love what he wants. You share an interest, a common purpose, a vision, a value system. You do it together. Finally, verse five, or number five, a sharing in love. I love this next verse, 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we've loved God, no way, but what? He loved us. And what's the greatest picture of his love? He sent his son, and what did his son do for you? Propitiation, that's a word we're gonna keep. Atoning sacrifice, he took your place on the cross. Another, another place in scripture, uh, Paul will say, um, God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we didn't care. He died for us. We're loved. We're loved. Do you know his love that you have? Well, of course you don't. <laughs> but do you know just a piece of it? Do you want to know more? It's a fellowship of his love. And what does that turn, in, turn up in you? Love for him. Love for him. Know the original gospel. Know that the original gospel is a knowable gospel. Know the point of knowing the gospel, which is to know God himself. Can you know God? Can you know that you know God? Yes. Trust yourself to Jesus. Believe the gospel. He died on a cross for your sins. He rose from the dead. He reigns as king. Repent, turn, trust him. If you've done that, you know him. He knows you. Finally, the result. Look at verse 4. In closing, John writes, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Wouldn't you agree that fellowship with God is pure joy? What could be better than that? Friendship with God. When you see him for who he is, I mean, it just it thrills you with joy. When you see his love, it's joy. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus. He's our joy. It's, uh, fellowship with God is pure joy. It's amazing to think that God's fellowship with himself do you think he has pure joy in his fellowship with himself? Father loving the son, son loving the father, etc. Of course he does. Do you realize that God's joy in himself motivated him to share that joy with others? What is he inviting all of us into? Come have fellowship with me. And he loves to do it. Do you see that joy is contagious? Joy is inviting. Have you ever seen something that gives you a lot of joy, but you are all by yourself? And you kind of went, eh. When's it really great? When your friend looks at it with you. 
when you, when you hold hands with somebody, or when you, when you taste it together, or when you've accomplished it together, when you look at somebody else, and they, and, you, and they look at you, and you smile, and you look back at it again. That's joy complete. That's joy complete. The same thing that God has done is, come share my joy with me. That's the same thing Christians are doing, or at least we're supposed to. Come share our joy with us. Why does John write this letter that in a way it's going to be confronting, the clarity on how to know God? It's not ultimately to win arguments. It's to share joy. Listen, I, I'll tell you the truth. So my favorite time worshiping God is worshiping God with you. And when I see you worshiping God and I'm worshiping him too, it's just like, uh. does anybody else feel that way? Shared joy is a greater joy. And so John says, I mean, later, uh, third John, he'll say, I don't have any greater joy than when my, my children are walking in the truth. He's got to fight for the original gospel and share that it's knowable because that's the only way to know God and the purpose or the result is joy. We cling to the truth for joy. That's why we do it. And when we believe it together, that joy is complete. How do you know that you know God? Can you know that you know God? Clarity. Know the original noble gospel. Crisis. Do you know it? Have you trusted it? Do you have fellowship with God? Confidence. If you've trusted your life to Christ, you have fellowship with God in a way that you haven't even tasted yet, and he's inviting you to more. Let's know him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you want to be known and you want us to know you as your children. You don't leave us as slaves or rejected failures in the corner, but you bring us in through your Son. You've given us your Son. Jesus, you've given us the Father. We have this gospel so we can know you. We want to know you. So Lord, I pray for anyone in here where this is new or confronting, I pray you'd help them, that you'd speak to them in a way that they can't ignore, they would know that you are revealing yourself to them. I pray for those who already know you, already trust you, that their confidence in knowing you would increase, and their joy in knowing you would increase, and their intimacy of fellowship with you would increase, and we would know that we know for our joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.